This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take me out. Give me all you got! Listen, Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I am your host, Blake Howard, and as promised in the last episode, here reversing rage, reversing out of his driveway is Mr. Cam Williams, at Mr. Cam W on Twitter. He is a freelance writer all over the place, Vice, uh, SBS Movies, you'll frequently hear him on the ABC, and Junkie. He joins me again after we've just seen... Uh, Ashley Judd, Charlene Chihilis, and Chris Chihilis have a bit of a fight. Get some great insights into the lives of these people um, that we're watching unfold. Mr. Cam Williams, thank you so much for coming back to One Heat Minute. Ah, uh, it's an honor, Blake. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Guys, we're going to rip straight in. We're going to jump straight into this minute. Watch the uh, 24th minute of heat. So it starts off 23.00 on your uh, screen right now. Um, if you want to watch along or listen along, you're about to hear the minute unfold, and then we're going to come back and unpack it. Tell me Albert Torina called back. Albert Torina called Vincent? No. No. Report came in. The explosive was Diex, linear-shaped charge used in demolition. She can pick it up with a driver's license in Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico. Too common to trace a sale, Vincent. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a good minute. That's a good minute. Yeah. You know what I was thinking about in that minute? What do you see? Was he one of the first films to kind of use scenes that have people on mobile phones? Because I can't recall a film where there were, you know, there were detectives and stuff extensively on mobile phones, you know, driving around in cars, talking with HQ, you know, that weren't like on CB radios, you know, like they're using mobile phones and it's quite mobile and they're getting around in that way. I can't, um, I, I'm not, I'm not familiar that we saw many like that. I, I would, I would say that's a really good call. Yeah. And especially yeah. sort of a more, a more modern flip phone. Right. Cause like you even go back to like lethal weapon, which is 89 and you've got Roger Murtaugh talking on one of those old, like, old-timey phones that was in a briefcase, like calling back to yeah. HQ for stuff like that. So, yeah, I'd, I'd struggle to think. I'd love, you know, guys, if you're listening at home and you know stuff, hit hit Cam and I up on Twitter, at Blakey's Batman or at Mr. Cam W, or just mail at One Heat Minute if you know um, some other some other cool uh, films that use that. But, yeah, like, I think they talk about, you know, this, especially the modern phone being like the death of some of these crime films and and the death of sort of suspense and spy films because you you know you the entire library of the world is at your fingertips at any given moment but yeah no i, I was i was more thinking about has al pacino ever picked up a phone and said hello 
You know, like he's just like, <laughs> I want to be cool enough. I want to be cool enough to just answer my phone and go, go. Like, like make someone just start telling me information. Not hello, no pleasantries, just go. And he just answers and goes, tell me Apple Tarina called. Like there's no, there's no pleasantries. There's no nothing. And then when he gets the bad news, you go, oh, that's wonderful. Bang, shuts the phone. Finish. Yeah, but like, but thinking about it, so like, if we have to assume, so he came out in 1995, and I think the mobile phone was just slimming down then and getting a little bit more user friendly. Yeah. So, I think we have to assume that he has maybe like three numbers on his mobile because <laughs> maybe three people own mobile phones at this point. So yes. it does it does kind of make sense that like if anyone calls him, he knows who it's going to be because he's like nobody else owns a mobile phone yet because they cost like ten grand. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. I might I might just be being presumptuous that he's he's just an egomaniac and maybe it's just yeah. you know he knows there's three other people in the entire state of Los Angeles that have his phone number. So. <laughs> Yeah, and plus, you know, we, you know, he lives in a pretty nice house as well, so we have to assume that he's kind of like, you know, he's well, he's well paid um, by his employer. Yes. Um, but two things at play here that I find interesting in terms of the way men, <laughs> the men, men do things, which is, I think you've pointed out one, which is someone like Pacino answering the phone, which I imagine kind of a lot of men in high-powered, stressful jobs probably act like that um, when it comes to answering phones. But I want to talk a little bit about the Rage Accelerate. Um, yes. which I find fast is like a fascinating, um, thing just in life where you're like, you know, when people kind of try to express themselves with an angry accelerate, you know, you see it all the time in traffic, you know, when someone's like tailgating you or trying to get past you and you, you know, you're going, come on, just pass me. And then they kind of like go, I'm really going to let this person know how annoyed I am by just unnecessarily accelerating. And it's like, like so I find in this scene, you know, where Kilmer gets in the car and, you know, it's such a masculine thing to do to kind of like reverse the car out and then like aggressively take off um, in a way that is just totally unnecessary. And also in a quiet neighborhood as well. Like that's, that's the, 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 when I think about what makes sense for these characters and them not trying to ever be raising a high profile, like what's a high profile, like a super souped up sports car, like late at night streaming out of a quiet neighborhood. Like, you know, what's, what's this guy doing? And yeah, you can see in that moment that it's like, it's so nonsensical, but it's very much that impulse, right? That, that's. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a male thing to do. And also you just imagine like cutting away to like one of their neighbors who are like, Oh, the Johnsons are at it again. Like, you know, like, (laughs) Oh, the Shehillis is. He must have had another haste. <laughs> like everyone must know. They're just like, yeah, something's not quite right in that place. If, if, but, they, um, if they didn't know that he was a crook, they would assume it. Like if you live next to, imagine living next to a guy who looked like him. You would go a yeah. hundred, you'd be that person that goes, sweetie, 100% that guy's a crook. Like if he, if he hasn't been in jail, I'll give you a thousand dollars right now. You know what I mean? Like you'd have that bet with your partner every day. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a great movie. Like uh, just just the normal people living in a heat style neighborhood, and just like kind of like just their everyday lives of like having to live next door to people that are like fighting and rage accelerating and like you know hanging blood stained clothes on their like you know that'd be that'd be excellent. But um yeah, so that scene with the rage accelerate straight into kind of you know that scene is a bit of a you know the Pacino on the phone that is a bit of kind of an exposition dump. But I guess we're kind of learning you know how that 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 team works as well so in the beginning we've learned how um the heist team works but you know something that i think you know you and you'll probably speak more to this as as the expert but you know i find like revisiting the film i found a lot you know like this film is all about you know the contrast between you know the two main characters and just different sides of the law 
Um, and so in the beginning, we learn heaps about Neil's team. And then as the film goes on, we learn more about um, Hannah. Vincent's Vincent team. Hannah. Yeah, Hannah's team. Vincent Hannah's team. So I guess like these these kind of little scenes and bits and pieces of them doing detective work, we're kind of, this is men kind of setting the table for these guys and going like, these guys aren't stooges. They're not, they're not crappy cops. Like they're good no. at what they do. And I'm going to show you guys how they're kind of trying to figure out how how to get onto these guys because that's going to then set the table for for the future confrontations and I guess like the cat and mouse game that's going to play out. Um, but in the beginning, you know, we're getting little bits and pieces of kind of detective work, um, which is cool because sometimes in you know these these crime style movies, you never actually get any sense of whether the main characters that are police are actually good at what they do, yeah, um, or that so- anything is hard. Like, all that yeah. things fall through. So, I think what's awesome about this scene, it's like a great, be- you know, Dante Spinotti is man's film, uh, uh, you know, frequent collaborator when it's director of photography. It cuts beautifully out of that rage acceleration into Vincent driving. And there's a there was a big editing team, but really it's Dove Honig and Tom Rolfe were the kind of key guys um, who did a lot of the editing for this film. And when you look at it, it cuts perfectly into them talking about the shape charge. So, it's like you see that, you know, even though it's, it's something that you picked up on cam, which is like, what is the motivation behind these guys? And, and after we've seen Kilmer's Chris, like lose it and smash something and you see, you know, Charlene, like she's hearing Dominic cry and she's deciding what she's got to do. And she's knowing that there's like smash glass all around the place. She can see that he's just sort of, you know, he's sort of, uh, you know, stomped through the place and she's sort of got to decide how she's going to go and approach her son there's this really cool feeling of like, oh, maybe because he bought the shape charge. This is me probably, you know, too far down the rabbit hole. But this moment you see that even though he's a bit manic at home and even though he's violent and even though he's impulsive, he still did his job really well, which is he yeah. bought a shape charge that is untraceable, you know? Yes. And, so, and so Vincent answers the phone and asks about Tarina because he's looking for a criminal informant to try and find a thread. But in this moment, the main reason for the call is Wes Studi's Casals to say to him, you know, the shape charge is still untraceable. So I love that there's that cool contrast in both of these scenes. You see super impulsive at home, probably drunken, you know, um, ridiculousness, gambling junkie, but you bet your sweet butt he's very good at what he does because he's allowed to continue to do it. And, and, and it's Vincent's disappointment in the scene that leads into sort of the you know, into the final sort of seconds of this minute where he's sort of going, I need to just take the edge off this day because it's been, you know, Mm -hmm. we've seen him from this, basically from the moment he wakes up and he's getting home really late at night. All of his team is working late. You know, um, McKelty, um, McKelty Williamson's, uh, Sergeant Druck is there like working away, like waiting for a call and, and Casals is checking out that other stuff. So yeah, I just, I, I hadn't noticed it looking at each you know in in this insane project sometimes you look at minutes in isolation but i hadn't noticed how that beautiful echo happens in both scenes which is like impulse but no he's got that precision in his professional life Mm, yeah definitely and it's it's like you talked you talked a little bit in the previous episode i'm sure you're going to talk about this a lot throughout this project but i think it just comes down to kind of like men being kind of you know kind of he just plans everything so meticulously. So 
you know, his preparation is impeccable. So I guess that translates a little bit into his characters as well. Yeah. So the characters that he's writes kind of have a little bit of that, you know, perfection, OCD, all that kind of stuff built into them. Um, so it becomes then, you know, detrimental to the plot that these guys will kind of be able to kind of cover their tracks really easily. And then that's going to frustrate the police who are working really hard to kind of try and figure it out. Um, and yeah, it all, it all kind of plays beautifully into each other. So, and yeah, these, these kind of minutes side by side, the previous minute and this one, um, again, like it's this, the story doing a lot of busy work that I guess you could easily kind of go, oh yeah, this is just kind of a, a minute that's a bit of an exposition dump, but we're, we're slowly learning how that police team functions. And, um, it's really important to the scope of the entire story that we learn that these guys are good at what they do. Cause otherwise if they're just going to kind of be kind of bumbling cops, then you get like a really, um, you get an off balance, um, you get an off balance film. And I think, you know, heat is very much a movie that is about people on different sides of the law who are very, very good at what they do. So, yeah. um, and, and that's where we kind of, that's where we just get really into it because we just want to see, we just want to see them face off. And, you know, I guess, the biggest symbol of that is, you know, the two main actors, De Niro and Pacino, you know, they kind of represent, you know, the two sides of the id and, you know, everything is building up to, you know, this scene that whoever gets that minute, I'm very, env- or those minutes, I'm very envious <laughs> of those people, but, you know, it is all building towards that. Um, and it kind of, ah, you know, what just came to my mind, it reminds me so much of um, Wrath of Khan, the Star Trek yes. film, because something that great great formidable foes you know that two two guys who are so equally matched and intelligent your villain doesn't have to be a a raving lunatic and a psychopath all the time He, he can be calculating and smart and charming and 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 mirror a lot of the similar personality traits um, um, as your hero. And that's why yeah. Wrath of Khan is so dynamic, even to this day, watching it over and again. It's still so perfect. Yeah, and I think the most fascinating thing about Wrath of Khan is that at not once during that film do Khan and... Um, do Khan and Kirk come face-to-face. It's yeah. all... Everything is happening separate. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's crazy that in our minds when we remember the film, we kind of think about them having confrontations, but they never meet. Um, and yeah. so it's, it's, and that's very similar to heat in the way that, you know, we've got two huge, huge personalities, mega star kind of actors at the time, like not even like coming face to face yet. And the film is kind of doing all this really hard work to set the stage for what is going to happen. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, this minute is again, you know, evidence of that busy work that's happening in heat to set everything up. This is my also, I love this minute because it's my, you know, there's going to be many minutes of this. This is my Wes Studi appreciation um, rant um, that often will come up in the episode of One Heat Minute, which is, God damn, Wes Studi is good as Casals. I love, I also love the uh, the makeup of his team and just the, the faces that man picks. And Wes Studi is just so great, like so composed. I think one of the things about, I, I love about um, the teams here is, De Niro always seems composed and Vincent right in the moment is the most composed. But, you know, we see in the next minute, like his team's all composed instead of, you know, to contrast Kilmer, who's at home, you know, letting off steam. But it's actually Vincent is the one who's letting off steam. Vincent's the one who's quietly stalking around his house, needing a drink, um, Mm. you know, in this moment and, and sort of looking upstairs, hoping that he doesn't wake up Justine. And Natalie Portman's character, Lauren, you know, he's hoping that he doesn't do that. He's just sort of quietly taking the edge off. Um, and you know, that's, that's, that's another interesting thing, right? It's a really interesting that these guys 
in their different times are composed and have balance and where the balance and imbalance is in these guys. It's um yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting. And it's funny you said about Khan there too, Wrath of Khan, because like it's like that famous uh it's the reservoir dogs trick where you're sure that you saw the ear get cut off, but at no point do you see it get cut off, you know? And it's yeah. like and you're sure that you've seen like weren't they in the same scene? It's, no, you're right. You're 100% right. They were never in the same scene, but I, my my mind makes me believe that they're in the same scene at some point and facing off against one another, but it's all across, you know, uh, screens and, and whatnot. Yeah, and speaking a bit to, um, you know, the detective work that's going on, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing, um, we're seeing Pacino going home in this scene and, you know, uh, his, his guys are still at the office. So... Um, I guess we get a sense of dedication in this scene as well. And I always um, find it really interesting in this bit where uh, I think what he's drinking says a lot about the situation. Yeah. Because, <laughs> um, you know, we've, we've seen throughout the beginning of the film, you know, that we kind of have to make the assumption that, you know, he's, he lives in quite a nice house. Um, you know, his wife is taking prescription medications, which I assume is not too, not as cheap in America. No. So they're kind of living this, he's kind of like, you know, he's kind of like a, he's a bit of like a, like a Hollywood cop in a bit that he's kind of, you know, living way above a pay grade that we kind of would probably associate with real detectives. Um, but at the same time, when he goes home, like he's drinking Jack Daniels. Yeah. So, you know, like you think that maybe he would have, you know, maybe some, you know, finer liqueurs in the cabinet. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's not, he's not taking he's... out a 12 year old malt liquor. He's just grabbing a glass at Jack off the yeah, table. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I do, I always find it really fascinating in, I guess, police stories and, you know, anything to do with, you know, professional crooks or serial killers or anything like that is kind of the divide between the working class structure of a traditional police force in that, you know, you've got your kind of your standard police officers, your footmen, and then the the hierarchy within that. So, you know, people that are detectives and homicide detectives and, you know, the difference between police, police in uniform and police that wear a suit, you know, like yeah. so many times in films, you know, whenever a, a detective has to go back to being in um, uniform because they get, they get busted or they get in trouble in film as from a status point of view, that's always such like a big, like step down. It's like, Oh, like, you know, you're back on um, duty. You're back on, un- you're back in uniform. You have to go and do patrol, all that kind of stuff. So it's always a really fascinating divide between working class cops and that kind of thing. And then I guess the detectives who are meant to kind of be a little bit more senior. And I would assume, you know, are a little bit more elite in the way that they act. Yeah. But um, what's great about, and I love what you're talking about here. And but what's great about it is also what we discover later is when right this minute, and you're hundred percent right, right at this minute, we're seeing him, he's, he's living in this beautiful place. He's doing all this stuff. Um, what we're going to see later is that he, he owns none of this. This is not his house. This is his, yep. you know, he talks about, he, t- he even says it as an insult to um, Diane Venora's character, Justine. He's like, you're, you know, your ex-husband's bullshit art deco house, like later in the film. So, you know, he, he even when he leaves in a, in a fuss, um, he takes a television, you know, a crummy <laughs> television yeah, yeah. that sits on a table. And so I think this might be what you've gotten onto perfectly is there's something a little bit weird is you're, you may have thought that he's this, you know, rough and tumble, you know, or sorry, this very well-to-do detective and there's something hierarchically different, but, you know, coming home, coming home and having a glass of Jack, um, mm. it's like, oh, there's something, you know, there's something a bit more relatable to this guy. And, and, and later on, we're going to start to see that unfold more, but I think it's, it's like, it's a, your choice of beverage is like a precursor to that information, like a small touch, 
Nah, he's just going to have a glass of Jack. He wouldn't be drinking, you know, Glen Livy, you know, Scotch, single malt, you know, things mm. like that. Um, but yeah, no, it's really interesting. So are we, okay, so are we meant to assume that when he moved into that house, he showed up with a television and a <laughs> bottle of Jack Daniels? Pretty much. Because that checks, because that kind of checks out. Like, you know, like, I kind of, I, like, his character, I would assume that the day that he decided to move in, he would have probably shown up with, like, very little. So, well, like, like um, honestly, two suits, like, probably five shirts. And a bottle of Jack Daniels in that TV would, is literally what he took to that house. Um, yeah. I, I don't imagine, you know, three marriages, you know, uh, uh, you know, we've had that great line or we're about to have the great line from Nate coming up in a future minute from John Voight, you know, this guy has three marriages. You think you like staying home? You know, I don't, I don't think he has much of anything. I think his job is his everything. So, you know, this is, um, one of those sort of calm before the storm scenes where he's, you know, taking the edge off the day and, and yeah, we're getting a real insight. Again, I love, you know, and, and I know that, you know, we've talked about this in, in the context of other films, but I just love when filmmakers don't need to say anything to really convey a lot of information really quickly about a character. And I, I so I love little choices like this, a little flurry where Pacino doesn't say a word and just sort of comes in quietly and doesn't have too much to say at all other than just sort of, I'm just going to sort of sit here and take the edge off and we get to watch him act. Um, uh, I love that in Heat, you know, for a 170-minute film, there are lots of passages where there there's no dialogue. You know, there's just things happening and you have to watch these these characters perform silently. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really impressed with that. Do you know much about... Um like how much freedom cuz i think you know the context of the context of heat you know like i think i remember when it first came i was too young to see it in a cinema when it came out Me too. so i didn't see it until it was on VHS but um Something that's, you know, really fascinating is, you know, the film was kind of marketed as, you know, the, the Pacino, De Niro, um, you know, together again in a film. Um, and that that was kind of the big draw card of the films. Do you know much about how that power translated into the actual making of the film? Like, like was, was Pacino allowed to kind of do things without too much scrutiny from man or did man kind of quality control it, you know, down to the, um, you know, an inch of its life? I think man is, you, you only have to look at... Um, there's different levels of detail and there's different levels of detail that come out. Um, and you know, the film's recent, you know, two years ago was the film's, um, uh, 20th anniversary. And as part of the 20th anniversary, they talked about how the film went down. And I think man is really good at, or, or sort of, you know, um, uh, really good at just making every single person, insanely prepared for any role that they're going to do and then allows the actors to sort of the, the flair to do more. And I think with Pacino specifically and his team, they didn't have as much preparation as Neil's team. Neil's team, you know, he had them all weapons training and doing all this crazy stuff. And Vincent basically hovered around an FBI, you know, and, and Pacino rather hovered around an FBI investigator, a very manic um, investigator who used to sort of put people off. But, um, but yeah, no man keeps a tight rein, even with people like Tom Cruise, you know, like he had Tom mm. Cruise in collateral as part of his preparation, dressing up as couriers and sneaking into places, you know, like mm. I think he keeps a really tight, um, tight control. And as far as Warner brothers was concerned, it's only uh, uh, the date that we're recording uh, this episode um, for, for, for folks who are playing along at home is the 18th of October. And uh, the Hollywood Reporter brought out a story only a, a couple of days ago now about 
you know, um, basically Michael Mann being able to hold Warner Brothers, in his words, hostage um, with with the film because he'd made, you know, sort of a proof of concept TV movie called L.A. Takedown. Um, and he'd had the story kicking around since something like 1975, which was based off of a cop he knew in Chicago named Chuck Adamson, um, who wrote the original story. And there was a, a real life Neil McCauley. Um, and he said, so when he had Pacino and when he had De Niro and he, and he was able to sort of hold them ransom for the budget that he wanted, he had all the control. You know, they were pretty sure they were going to get their money back. So, yeah, he's a very fastidious filmmaker. So I think that Pacino would have had his way to a point, but Michael Mann seems like a guy who gets what he wants, basically. <laughs> I think that that's more yeah, I watch yeah. this film. He gets, he gets what he wants and, and or, or, or can work with actors that can get what he wants because you only have to look at his next film, The Insider, which I think is another one of Pacino's most fantastic performances as Lowell Bergman. Um, he gets a very different... Um, yet engaging performance from him in that as well. So I, I think they, they definitely had a, a good working relationship for a couple of movies. Yeah, because something revisiting the film, and I think, you know, we pre- in the previous episode we talked about how I think there's a lot of choices that um, Ashley Judd and Val Kilmer make in their scene that you, you can kind of go, oh, I wonder if that was like their own decision to do that in the scene or whether they were directed. And I think when you're working with actors like Kilmer, Judd, Pacino, De Niro, when I'm revisiting the film, like in the context of its long history now, I'm always like fascinated by, I wonder if that was an improv or I wonder if that was, I wonder if man just shot this scene and just let Pacino or De Niro do whatever they want or did a few takes of letting them do whatever they want because <laughs> yeah. cause it's really fascinating looking at the timeline of when Heat landed. So this was a time when both of them were still kind of not the caricatures that they are now. <laughs> yes. And so De Niro hadn't done hadn't gone into kind of his downward spiral into just doing comedies and Pacino. I think he has some signs of him going full Pacino, but not, (laughs) you know, but not as much as he's known now. You know, I think a lot of roles in the late nineties into the early noughts, he was kind of really just in every film. It was like Pacino times a million and (laughs) you could just not, you could just not rein him in. Well, Um, the, the most notable performance a piece of performance in the film is the infamous cafe scene. And that's, yep. ta- that, that is take 17. Wow. Um, and actually he allowed Pacino to improvise the dream dialogue, the dream explanation. So they wrote that and were, and, and, and Pacino and De Niro delivered that together. And even the way that, you know, what's so beautiful and organic about that sequence together is, you know, even how De Niro's Neil just goes, no talk. Like, you know, when he's talking about, you know, sitting around the table with these people, with these black eyeballs looking at me, he's like, do they say anything? You know, no, they don't say anything. No talk. No. And so that was all improvised um, early in the scene. I don't know if they shot versions of it earlier, but um, uh, you know, when you listen to the director's commentary and we may even, you know, bring some clips into it when we do get to those minutes, but man talks very specifically, no, this is my 17th take. And you know, wow. when they, when they hit it, they nailed it perfectly. And he talked about them complimenting and acting and reacting to one another physically, um, you know, with movement, with gestures, with ticks, with every single subtle, you know, with all of their craft on show, their faces, their, their torsos, their bodies. Um, but yeah, so I, I imagine if it makes sense for the character, um, man will let you go there. But I think it's, you know, it, it's like a special reserved place for people like Pacino and De Niro to do that. You know, to, yeah, yeah, to kind of to kind of allow that because man is in other in you know many other contexts is very you know as, you know slate makes people slavishly adhere to a vision 
Yeah, it's in. I, I really hope, and and I guess this kind of acts as a bit of a call out too, that you know, like as as this project goes on, and you can get as many different people on that may have like you know been involved in the film or worked on the film. Like I'm, I'm really keen to hear more about, I guess, the method, you know, like and how, you know, if if there are any things in the films that you know was was one of the actors' choices or or that kind of thing, because yeah, like in the in the minute that we're talking about right now, the fact that he's sitting down and drinking Jack Daniels, like I'm wondering if that was was that something that Pacino kind of brought to the scene, you know, to try and emphasize, you know, his character's kind of state of mind and I guess his status within that relationship and, and in the context of living in that house um, that is not his own? Um, I, yeah, I'm really fascinated to learn more about um, how all that stuff came together because, I mean, from, from an actress point of view, and you're going to go into the next minute with this one, but, you know, you know, is she coming down those stairs and, you know, and they're kind of saying to her, okay, like just walk down the stairs and, and Pacino's going to like take it from here, but this is where the scene needs to go. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that, that process considering that, you know, Pacino, you know, is known for being that kind of that method actor and that actor that is just left alone to kind of do his thing. Um, and I think, you know, uh, th- with this minute kind of being on the cusp of, uh, of you know, another great conversation between a husband and wife within this film. Um, yeah, I'm really fascinated to find out, you know, how much Pacino brought to it and then how much, I guess, Mann micromanaged it. Well, Michael Mann, Al Pacino, Diane Venora, if you're listening, um, you've heard it here <laughs> from Mr. Ken Williams that he wants you on the show. And so, I'm, look, I'm happy to endorse uh, this message from Cam to say... Um, Definitely. I, I, if... if you know, I think if, if there was ever an opportunity to talk to any of the amazing, talented performers in this film about their performances specifically, I, I would I would be thrilled, um, you know, because, you know, some of the most famous parts of this movie were parts that were improvised, you know, the famous great ass um, that, you know, and, and Hank Azaria's shocked look was like a late take, a, sh- a shocking sort of thing from Pacino. Um, so, you know, there's some, you know, there's some great improvisational sort of flares in a movie that has been planned meticulously for like 20 years before it was finally brought to its, you know, glorious big screen opus that it is. So yeah, look, um, I agree. I, I look, I, I have watched this movie now. I I'm losing count of how many times I've watch this movie and every time I look at some of these choices and performances and I just there's not a weak link for me across the board I think everyone's fantastic um everyone that we learn learn about just is at the top of their game so really interesting to see how much they had uh influence on that or if man sort of pushed them in that right direction but Cam yeah perfect way to end with demands that Al Pacino and uh, and uh, Ashley ah. Judd and Michael Mann join us on the podcast. Thank you, sir, so much for joining us for two episodes of One Heat Minute. Will you come back at some point along this crazy journey with us? I will definitely be back, um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing from Mr. Mann and Mr. Pacino about <laughs> um, everything to do with heat. So, I mean, it, you know, it'll be a real, you know, people will be really raging in the streets if, if they're not part of One Heat Minute at some point. So um, I'm, I'm on board for this journey, and I'm looking forward to hearing um, more One Minute at a Time. <laughs> thank you, Cam. Guys, thank you so much for listening, and you can follow Cam at... Uh, at Mr. Cam W on Twitter. Um, that will lead you off into all his amazing freelance writing around the place. Um, thank you so much to Gus Franklin for our website design, Paul Davis for our music. Um, and thank you guys so much for listening and continuing to listen. So if you want to subscribe um, to One Eight Minute, you can do so on iTunes. Um, we would love to you to rate and review the podcast if you can as well and tell many friends about it. Um, but I am your host, Blake Howard, and we'll be back next time with One Heat Minute with another awesome person to chat to about the awesomeness 
of the next exchange, this husband and wife scene and building these characters out and these real people out of these archetypal heroes and villains that we're seeing. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you, sir. Yes, awesome. That was cool. Thank you, buddy. Really appreciate it.